0: continue in our sermon series that we have entitled, But First, a study of the priorities of Jesus. And we will hear in this passage today, Jesus say, but first, gather the weeds. And in this text, we're going to look at Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of God, but he's also teaching on the judgment of God and hell, I wonder, what comes to your mind when you think you're about to hear a sermon on the judgment of God and hell? If you grew up in the church like I did, or if you've grown up in the buckle of the Bible belt, perhaps you have memories, as I do, of what they call fire and brimstone sermons. I can remember as a kid sitting and seeing just, you know, Red-faced men yelling, angry frowns on faces. And I'm sure that those sermons came from hearts of people who cared for my soul and wanted to warn me of God's judgment and hell. But because of that kind of preaching, some of you may be nervous right now. If you're a guest here and you've never been here before, you're thinking, what kind of church is this that I have walked into today? What kind of sermon am I going to hear? Some folks, especially those in the younger generation, because of that kind of hell and brimstone, hellfire brimstone preaching that I'm describing, there are folks, especially in younger generations, who have come to think of God as an angry tyrant, or they think of Christians as people who are judgmental and mean-spirited. And the result, as a result of that reaction that our culture has had to fire and brimstone preaching, some preachers just don't talk about the judgment of God anymore. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about and a lot of folks prefer that kind of inspirational preaching where you don't hear any of the bad stuff, but you only hear good stuff. Then in reaction to those preachers who no longer talk about judgment or hell, other preacher, preachers and churches in an effort not to compromise the teaching of God's words almost seem to overcorrect and take a stand even more strongly in an effort to show that they are not caving into the culture, but they are standing for truth in this generation. Because of all that context that is out there in the world around us, I confess I'm nervous about preaching this sermon. I'm nervous because some may think that I've compromised with the culture and I'm not standing for truth in this generation if I don't preach this topic a certain way. I know that there are others of you who are worried because you brought a friend with you today and you worry now that I'm going to be too harsh or that I'm going to be offensive. And if you're worried about any of these things, listen, I'm worried too. And my suggestion is this. Why don't you pray for me as I say a prayer for you and for all of us as we come to God's word together. Let's pause for prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, we can't control the context that we live in, but you understand it even better than we do. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that now during this time... That you would be willing to speak to people through your word and I pray that we would hear your word more clearly than anything else that we would hear your word more clearly than experiences we've had in the past that we would hear your word over our fears and worries and concerns I pray that you would speak to us now through your word. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We've talked about the context in which we find ourselves and the possible reactions to this kind of a topic of a sermon I want you to know where we're coming from here at Redeemer Church. Those of us who are members are followers of Jesus. And so it's important to us that we say what Jesus says. And so we want, I want to be very clear today to, to look at what is it that Jesus says about hell or God's judgment. But because we are followers of Jesus... God's Word tells us that we are being conformed into His image, that God is using all things to make us look like Jesus, that we act like Jesus, that we react like Jesus. And so we as a church want to be concerned not just about what Jesus says about the judgment of God in hell, but also how He says it. Because we want to look like Him in what we say and in what we do. So I want to read for us this text where Jesus is preaching and teaching to a crowd about the kingdom of God and God's judgment and hell. And I'm going to read it, and I wonder if you will be as surprised as I was. What do you think it will sound like to hear Jesus preaching and teaching about God's judgment and hell? I invite you to hear now the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather up the weeds? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, First, gather the weeds and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." That's it. There it is. We just read Jesus preaching and teaching on God's judgment and hell. I wonder if you are as surprised as I am. For my note takers, there are at least four things that I'm surprised by. And I want to share them with you now. First, I'm surprised that Jesus told a story. Now let me clarify, if you're not from the South, you probably don't have this problem, but if you're from the Southeastern United States, let me clarify, I'm not saying Jesus is lying here, okay? If you're not from the Southeastern United States, you need to understand that sometimes we in the South, we're so genteel, we won't call anybody a liar, so we say, oh, he's just telling you a story. Your parents or grandparents sometimes will say, are you telling me a story? In other words, you lying to me? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm surprised that literally Jesus tells a story here, specifically a parable, which is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And I'm surprised because we don't usually tell stories to adults very often. Can you imagine if you came to me and you had this very deep burning question and you wanted to talk to a spiritual leader and you came and you sat down and you poured out your heart to me and I nodded and I said, yes, yes, I have some thoughts about that. Here's what I think. Once upon a time, there was a man who sowed good seed in a field I wonder how long would it be before you just zoned out? Because I didn't seem to be talking about what you had asked. Or how long would it be before you said, what is it with this guy? I didn't come here to hear stories. I came here to hear the truth. But you need to understand that Jesus often illustrates truth by telling stories that people could understand and relate to. In fact, about this story, did you know that there was a Roman law that prevented rivals from sneaking into your field and sowing weeds because competing farmers would sabotage each other in this way? So while we don't relate to first century Palestinian agricultural practices very well, these folks did. And so Jesus is speaking to their language lang- in a way that they can understand. But that really begs the question, doesn't it? Why would Jesus tell a story about something as important as God's judgment or hell? I mean, he just tells a story. And then he says over and over again, He who has ears... Let them hear. It's like Jesus is saying, listen if you like. Leave if you like. Jesus is not demanding to be heard. There's no red-faced yelling, no angry scowl on his face. And the result of this, if you keep reading the text, is most of these crowds do leave and go home. And for many of us, we see this and our hearts cry out, Jesus, you're losing them. <laughs> they're, going, they're turning and they're going back home. You're not closing the deal. Maybe his disciples who are fishermen said, Jesus, you're not getting the fish in the boat. You don't seem to be very effective. Why is he just telling stories? Well, Jesus actually tells us why he tells us stories. In a few verses before this, in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 14, he says it fulfills the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. But then in verse 15, he tells why. He says the reason he tells stories is because people's hearts are dull. People's hearts are are insensitive. They're hard. They're apathetic, even cynical, about the things of god and telling a story forces us to show what's in our hearts will we be uninterested and impatient and just move on or are we going to humbly say i don't know what that means will you explain it to me will you teach me you see a story reveals the humble, the patient, the teachable, those who want to learn. Those who will come to Jesus and say, "Will you teach me?" I want you to know if you are here that Redeemer Church is a place where you can come and you can say, "I don't know what this is talking about. Will you explain it to me? Will you teach me?" There is no shame in asking that question. In fact, Jesus is inviting that question. Look at verse 36 of the text. We read there, Then he, Jesus, left the crowd, so he's not with them anymore, and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him. So he's left church, he's left the crowds where the big group is gathered, and he's gone to a community group in his home, I suppose, to talk in our language. And his disciples come to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. (laughs) Don't you love that? Think about that. These guys have been walking with Jesus for months. They have heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount. They have seen him heal dozens of people. They've seen him calm a storm with just a word. They've seen him cast out demons. They've heard him teaching in the synagogues all around Israel. They've heard him preach to the crowds. And yet they come and say, we don't understand. Will you explain it to us? Jesus invites us to come to him and to ask these kinds of questions. And look how he responds. He doesn't say, oh my gosh, why are y'all asking questions? He explains it to him. Look in verse 37. He just explains the parable. Verse 37, he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seed is the children of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil." The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. Now I'm surprised about a couple of more things. I told you first I was surprised that Jesus told a story, but now I'm surprised. Secondly, I'm surprised about who he's explaining this to. And thirdly, I'm surprised by how he's explaining it. Let me tell you what I mean. Number two, I'm surprised by who he's explaining the story to. He's not talking to the crowds. He has the content that you would expect in a fire and brimstone story. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about people burned in the fire. But he doesn't talk to the crowds. He's He's explaining this to his disciples. What do you make of that? I mean, Jesus is not talking that plainly to the crowds. To them, he told a story that was ambiguous to see who would step forward and want to learn. This content is for disciples. This content is for church people. And church people at that in a relational setting, right? At least the third thing, I'm surprised surprised how he tells them, the manner in which he does it. Remember, it's all the content of a fire and brimstone sermon. The devil, people being burned at the end of the age. But the tone is not what we might expect. There's no red-faced anger, yelling, frowning. They're just there in a living room, hanging out. In a very relational context, they ask him to explain this parable. He just calmly explains, well, the seed is this, and the enemy is the devil. Very, very matter of fact, very instructive, he answers their questions. So I'm surprised by who he explains this to. I'm surprised by how he explains it. But let's just get to the, the money thing, right? Number four. Some of us are surprised by the content here because he does have the content of what you would expect in a fire and brimstone sermon. The devil, people gathered and burned and fire at the end of all things. And that is surprising for some of us. Because many of us have in our minds this Jesus who is nice and meek and mild, and the Jesus we have in our minds is very tolerant of all views, so we don't expect Jesus to talk this way. But did you know the person in the Bible who talks about hell more than anyone else is Jesus himself? So as followers of Jesus, I want you to understand... As followers of Jesus, if Jesus talks about hell and the judgment of God, th- then we have to talk about hell and the judgment of God. And we want to talk about the content the same, but we want to talk about it in the same way that Jesus talks about it. So that's our heart. Hear my heart behind that, right? We want to say what Jesus says in the way that Jesus says it. So let's just let's dive in. Here's the hard stuff, right? Let's just, let's go. We'll all hold hands. We're, we're all in this together, right? Let's just move into what Jesus says. Verse 41. The Son of Man, which is what Jesus, his favorite way to refer to himself, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears. Let him hear. And some of you, when you hear that, you say, there it is. That's it. That's why I hate Christianity. Because it's always judging people. It's always excluding people from heaven. And I understand that sentiment. But let me ask you, let's just think about this together. If you... We're establishing a kingdom, because that's what Jesus is describing here. What kind of kingdom would you establish? What kind of kingdom would you set up? And let me just warn you that it may sound good to say, Oh, I would have a kingdom where people have the freedom to do whatever they want to do with no restrictions. And we're led to believe that that would be a good kind of kingdom. And we're led to believe that by a culture addicted to our own self-centered satisfaction, fueled by our pride and arrogance, fueled by visions of pornography that say you can have anything you want, Fueled by the advertising and the movies that mimic that pornography that lead us to believe having anything we want is what is best for us. And I want you to know not only does the Bible say that is not the best kind of kingdom. But history has shown that's not the way to set up a kingdom. And I'll bet if you think about it with me, from your own experience, you would agree that's not the best kind of kingdom. Think about it with me. Parents, imagine a world that you're going to raise your kids in a kingdom where people are free to do whatever they want to do. Chaos, right? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's just be honest. The fact is... We live where we live if we have the cash to move where we want to live so that we can live in a community where people cannot just do whatever they want to do with no restrictions. We choose that when we choose where to live. That's why we pick some neighborhoods to live in and not others. Think about your own experience. Those of us who have lived life and experienced The effects of people doing whatever they want to do with no restrictions. We know the chaos and the pain that it brings. Those of us who know what it's like to require Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon for the families of those who have been controlled and had their lives ravaged by alcohol. Those of us who have lived through addictions of our own. Or live through addictions of our loved ones to sex or pornography, to drugs or to food, to shopping or to gambling, addictions to the internet or to video games. Those of us who have lived through those things know that freedom to do whatever you want to do with no restrictions is no freedom at all. It leads to bondage and chaos it leads to pain and regret don't we long for the kind of kingdom where people cannot do whatever they want to do we long for governing authorities who are good we long for police who are not corrupt we long for family members who will not use us in inappropriate ways We long for this kind of kingdom, and what God is doing here is what we long for. This is the kind of kingdom we were meant to live in. We were not meant to live in a kingdom with no restrictions. Now, usually at this point, someone says, and you may be thinking, well, I'm not in favor of there being no restrictions at all. I just don't really like the restrictions that that God has. I want to set some different restrictions than this. And if that's where you are man, let's talk about it. Let's talk about God's laws and which ones you have a problem with. But I can assure you of this, that he who made those laws also made you. And he made the world. And he made everything in it. And he knows how it's designed to work. He knows how life works best. And his law is the safe path. That protects us from ourselves. He knows how life in this world works best. And you know from your own experience that people who act with no restrictions or who want to make a law of their own choosing create chaos in a community. And pain and addictions and therapy and support groups and police and prisons and jails are the inevitable result. So for God to say what he says here, that that his kingdom is a place where lawbreakers and all causes of sin are excluded, that does not make God mean or closed-minded. It makes God wise. It makes him good. It's a good thing that God says his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. Now, I know that exclusion by God, that God exercising his judgment sounds scary. But let me ask you, do you also see the mercy of God in this parable? Do you see it? Look how long he waits to judge. Remember the workers of the field come and say, do you want us to pull up the weeds now? Do you want us to get rid of the bad stuff now? And he says, no, don't. Let the weeds and the wheat grow together. You know, we all long in our heart for all brokenness to be done away with. We all want to see the end of oppression. We all want to see the end of cancer or racism or sin in all of its forms. And we often get mad at God that he doesn't, lest I say, judge things soon enough. Boy, we're all over the place, aren't we? I mean, why is God so patient with evil in his good creation? Why does he allow it to continue to flourish? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the one who says to wait to pull up the weeds is the same one who says that weeds can become wheat. He's the same one who says you can be born again, that you can be made new, that you can have your weedness that chokes out the things of God. You can have that forgiven and healed. On some level, we long for God to get rid of the weeds. We long for an end to shame and fear and blame and hatred and oppression and decay and death. But the master of the field, in his grace... And in his mercy and patience, he lets the messiness of living life among weeds happen. And he lets weeds remain now. And he does so because he is lovingly, persistently pursuing the redemption of weeds. Do you see the mercy and patience of God in this? Maybe you're here today and you're worried because you're saying, hey, I'm a lawbreaker. I'm a cause of sin. I'm one of the ones that should be excluded from God's kingdom. And that should concern you because we just had a confession we all agreed that that was true of us. Listen to me. Do not think that there is no provision for those of us who are lawbreakers and the cause of sin, as if Jesus has not come to deliver us from these things. We who do these things can be forgiven. Romans 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we saw an explanation of that in Romans 3 that we read together before. Basically, it says that Jesus lived the life that I should have lived, and he died the death that I should have died so that I can be made right with God. But I want you to know the good news is better than you can be made right with God. It's better than that because of the resurrection of Jesus. That means we can change because of his resurrection power. He now lives in us by his spirit, that same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1 and 2 talks about, is in us. And as 1 John 4 and verse 4 reminds us, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. So that's the good news for wheat. It means that tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. It means what we have never been able to free ourselves from on our own. He can free us. And as Philippians 1 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And as this text says, on that day we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. So I call you, run to Jesus. He is our only salvation from the judgment to come. If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, go to him with your questions. Ask him to explain all these things from you. Ask him to let you come into the living room and live life with him. And let yourself be surprised by this calm, Creative storyteller who will not compromise on the truth. May he work in all of us a vision of that day when he makes all things right. And may our vision of that day sustain us in this day as we face trials of many kinds until he returns to make things new.